Good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm going to be reading from the 24th chapter of Matthew, verses 36 to 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be, will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief would be coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Attention travelers, next Tuesday a major power outage will cause complete chaos throughout the city. Water, phone, and internet service will be in short supply. There will likely be panic citywide. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Disasters don't plan ahead. You can. Talk to your loved ones about how you're going to be ready in an emergency. Don't wait. Communicate. Oh, come on. Man, I thought that was going to go better. Oh, well, you know. Uh, you know, because disasters don't plan ahead, and it's like even though the holidays come every year, it's kind of like, oh, we forgot to plan ahead. You know, re online retailers and shopping centers, they prepare for months for the coming of the Christmas season, but it seems like it sneaks up on us every year. So what kind of preparation did you feel like you had for Thanksgiving? And what kind of expectation and preparation do you have for Christmas? So you can actually think about that for a second. Are you someone who's completely worried about the in-laws, outlaws, and ex-laws, um, you know, dynamics of Christmas? Or are you someone who's like, oh, we've got to get all of the holiday treats and parties lined up. We've got to make sure every, you know, just social calendar, or are you someone who's fretting about the gifts and making sure that either enough money is spent or the right number of gifts is spent for each person that you get? Because you got to make sure that you know either the amount, same amount of money or the same amount of gifts. Because you got it's got to be fair. You don't there. There's a better kind of preparation. Uh, the church calendar, or the Christian year, as it's sometimes called, begins with Advent. So the beginning of December or right after Thanksgiving is the start of a Christian's new year. Advent starts with stopping. Advent starts with waiting. This anticipation of the coming of the Savior. It's a time for us to look back and reflect on how Jesus came to us as a baby, but it's also a time for us to look forward and prepare for Jesus' second coming, that, that return when all of creation will be restored 
to wholeness and righteousness. It's a both and. And this morning we start this five-part series for Advent called Hope is on the Way. And we're going to look at some of the ancient Advent readings and we're going to look at how they apply to our lives today and how, if we really enter into them, they'll help us to engage with some complex emotions and feelings of the season. And so, to jump in, we're just going to look at today's scripture from three viewpoints. The first is how the first hearers would have heard that scripture that Patty read. The people, the immediate context around Jesus as he spoke it. The second, we're going to look at as the first readers. You know, Matthew had an audience that he intended to write to, and how would they have interpreted that about 30 years after Jesus died and rose again? And the third viewpoint is for us today. So, how does that still speak to us today? So first, imagine yourself right around Jesus as he's talking about the Son of Man returning and Noah and the flood, and this would have been the last week of Jesus' life. The religious rulers would have been there. They would have been plotting his death. His disciples would have been there. They would have, I have to imagine that the disciples are a little bit confused at this moment because Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. He's called himself the Word made flesh. He's called himself the living water, the light of the world. And now he's talking about being watchful and being ready about how no one is going to know the time that he returns, that only the Father knows that. I have to believe the disciples are freaking out a little bit. Like, Jesus, I thought you were here. I thought you were the Son of Man, so aren't you here now? Isn't this the time? Why are you talking about the time of Noah? Why? I didn't think God was going to flood the earth again. Didn't, wasn't there a rainbow? Didn't he make that promise? And half the population is just going to be taken like that? I mean, what are you talking about? And is it good to be taken or is it bad to be taken? Because, you know, Revelation hasn't been written yet, so it sounds like it's, it's, it's good to be taken. Actually, it sounds like it's bad to be taken. God, I'm confused. Or, Jesus, I'm confused. And why do we have to keep waiting and watching? So I don't think it would have been what the disciples expected. It certainly wasn't what the religious leaders were expecting. They expected the Messiah to be this king, and it would be obvious when he came on the scene. And Jesus was anything but obvious. They thought he was going to challenge the Roman rule, and all Jesus has been doing is challenging the religious rulers I wonder if that subtle message to the first hearers might still speak to us today, though. Speak to us today. Like, I think God gives us these little messages and we're quick to ignore them. At least I know I am. So the second view. Imagine now you're living around 60 AD. There's uh, that's when Matthew was probably written. There's another Roman emperor who's demanding to be worshipped as a god. There have been several, but this is another one. Christians are literally being thrown to lions. And it is a completely challenging time to be a follower of Christ. And technically, Jesus has already risen and ascended to heaven. And so this Holy Spirit's come down. Amazing things have happened. You've experienced amazing things in this time, but you haven't seen Jesus. And there's talk of end times and talk of, um, oh, I think Daniel's prophecy calls it the abomination that leads to desolation and is that the destruction of the, the temple and what does that mean? And so, again, confusion everywhere. But they have to be thinking that the return of Jesus is imminent. 
Like this is the kingdom is coming and yet other people are scoffing. Jesus isn't returning. And if he ha- why hasn't he returned? And if he's risen from the dead, proving everything he said, then why is he going to come around sneaking like a thief in the night? Wouldn't it be again clear and obvious? And, and why do we have to keep watching? And why are you talking about Noah and the flood again? At least that's what I thought. So if you're tempted to kind of check out or get confused, um, it's time to lean in because I was like, what? why? Yeah, why? <laughs> I was reading this a couple weeks ago going, wait a second, why are you talking about Noah and the flood if we're talking about preparing for Christmas? But think about when you first learned about Noah's Ark. Anybody want to just throw out when they probably first learned this? There's no wrong answers. Sunday school. As a child, as an adult, as a teenager. Child, for sure. Because who doesn't love stuffed animals in a boat? I mean, seriously, maybe you had a flannel graph. I did. I mean, it was awesome. But... The problem is we never push past the stuffed animals in the boat. We never talk about the, I mean, maybe we talk about the rainbow and God's promise to never flood the earth again, but we don't actually talk about the unbelievable destruction, the, the like death everywhere, animals, humans, darkness, chaos unleashed all over the planet. So, I'm sorry, but we effectively water down the flood story. I'm sorry. I was like, I just can't resist. But I did it too. Like we had the little play set with the toddler toys that hung down when our kids were tiny. We had Noah's Ark themed um, decorations. There might have been a precious moments, little rubberized little humans with the boat. It was, it was super cute. And I didn't come home from seminary and be like, do you think, you know, there were probably actually corpses like floating in the water. It was like the zombie apocalypse or something. It was crazy. I didn't do that. I thought about it, but I didn't. But we're not kids anymore. And so we can't look at the flood story like children. We've got to see it for what it is. And we've got to think about why Jesus talks about the flood when he refers to his second coming. See, Jesus points back to this time of Noah when there would have been eating and drinking and everyone would have been kind of doing their own thing, focused on themselves, not actually listening to any of the warnings. I'm sure there would have been scoffers wondering what in the heck Noah was building. Remember, there's been no rain that's come down on the world yet. So when he's talking about, oh, it's going to rain and there's going to be this flood, they're going to be like, you are on something. But they were caught up in their own unexpectations. So Genesis tells us that Noah found favor with God. So sometimes we do these things called all plays where we can all give an answer and it'll probably sound better than what I'm going to give. So what does it, so you can play. So what does it mean that Noah found favor with God? He paid attention. Do you want to say more about that? 
Okay, so he worshiped God. There were, he did certain actions that, that said that about God. I think that's probably on the right track. Anybody else? He was obedient. He did. What did he say? Patting. I'm, I'm sure there was arguing. I just don't see it in my Bible. So it's Genesis 6. This is really going to throw off the message if I'm wrong, but, uh, but that's why it's called an all play, because I could be. It's happened before. Ask my wife. <laughs> happened yesterday. So in Genesis 6-9, it says that this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. God saw how corrupt the world had become, for all the people of the world had become corrupt in their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and all the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms inside it. This is how you are to build it. I'm going to bring floodwaters, blah, 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 blah. Not that it's not important. You are to take every kind of food. And verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Chapter 7 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take seven parts, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure there was arguing. It's just not in the narrative. The only way that we know that Noah was righteous or blameless or the things that you guys said was because the narrator tells us or because God inserted it. Otherwise, Noah doesn't speak through the whole flood narrative. He has no response to God's announcement. He has no questions about the ark or the animals. He has no plea on behalf of anyone else. He has no cries for mercy. He has no joyful gratitude at being saved or no grief for all those who aren't saved. He has no impatience waiting in the ark. He has no prayers for thanksgiving. He has no character arc. No pun intended. This time, really. Means that Noah is left as this flat, minor character. Now, I, I not adamantly disagreeing with you, Patty. I believe that there was some dialogue between Noah and God, but it's not included in the story because I don't think the story's really about Noah or the stuffed animals or the boat. I think if we really want to engage the story, it's, we have to see that it's all about God. And we have to merge what we hear in the story, that there are these pictures of grace and judgment that crisscross in the whole story. We have to ponder a God who's responsible for all of this destruction and the salvation of just a few. We have to put this with the God of the New Testament that every time the flood is brought up, it's this reminder of God's grace and 
at the same time, the reality of God's judgment. We can't separate those. And here's the bonus connection, I think, between Noah's ark and the Christmas story. We give them both to the kids. We add stuffed animals. We have a boat or a barn or a cave or a basement or whatever. But we just hand them over as sweet stories. And we forget that the main character is God. And there's grace and there's judgment in both stories. And so to enter Advent Rel, I think we have to manage our unexpectations. And one of those unexpectations is the reality of God's judgment and the reminder of God's grace. That's what Jesus' coming was filled with in his first coming. There's this young righteous man named Joseph, this younger innocent woman named Mary, and they have to navigate the unexpected pregnancy that happened during their engagement. Then they have to travel, that was unexpected, to this probably unexpected Roman census. We're not sure, maybe they announced taxes. And then the unexpected announcement of the angels, the unexpected confirmation of shepherds, the unexpected accommodations in that basement or barn or cave or whatever Jesus was born in, the unexpected arrival of the world's Savior, not as a king, but as a helpless infant, and the unexpected blessings from the gifts of the wise men to escape the unexpected murder of all the babies in Jerusalem, Judea, Bethlehem, because of King Herod. There is grace and there is judgment. It's ultimately seen in Jesus' dedication when his parents bring him after he's born into the temple. There's this man, his name's Simeon. He's been told by the Holy Spirit that he will see the Messiah before he dies. And he just happens to be led by the Spirit this one day into the temple. And in that day, Mary and Joseph are bringing this baby and he comes up and they're just doing what the religious rules said. And so they bring him to the temple to dedicate him and Simeon gets to hold this baby. And he says in Luke 2, God, you can now release your servant. Release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I've seen your salvation. It's now out in the open for everyone to see. There's this God-revealing light to the non-Jewish nations, and there's glory for your people Israel. And Jesus, mother and father, had to be surprised that The word tells us that they're speechless and Simeon went on to bless them and says to Mary, this child marks the failure and recovery of many in Israel. Judgment, grace. He'll be misunderstood and contradicted. It'll be like a sword thrusting through you, Mary, the pain of what is going to happen. Judgment, grace, but the rejection will force honesty as God reveals who they really are. See, I believe that the early church wrote these things down because they expected these things to happen. It was a very dangerous time as the Gospels were written that the religious leaders were trying to crush this movement, these followers. The Roman Empire was trying to crush this movement. There's no reason this little band of people should have moved on, should have expanded, should have gone throughout the entire known world in just a matter of a few decades of centuries, just a few decades actually. 
but they were written with great care. I believe because the followers of Jesus didn't want anyone to miss the grace or the judgment. And Jesus is urging them and us to be watchful and ready for his return. So for me, it says, maybe I've grown a little complacent in my expectations of Jesus' return. It hasn't happened for 2,000 years, so it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Maybe you've thought that, or maybe you were like, no, no, I really do want Christ to come. I just want him to come after this milestone, after I get married, or I have kids, or after I have grandkids, or after I take that unbelievable vacation that I just can't wait to take. Maybe your unexpectations have to do more with your faith, your spiritual life. Like, I pray, but I don't really expect an answer. I come to worship. I don't really expect to meet the Holy Spirit and have the Holy Spirit speak to me. Or I might share my faith. I just might not really expect anyone to do anything with it. Maybe we're just going through the motions instead of having true expectations. But take a look at what uh, Peter says, one of Jesus' closest students in 2 Peter chapter 3. This just comes out, I think, so clearly in verse 3. It says, Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come. And they will say, they will follow, they'll mock the truth, they'll follow their own desires. They'll say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world has been first created. He hasn't come back yet. He's not coming back now. After a few verses, Peter replies, the Lord isn't slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Maybe it's worth wondering about the flood if someone would have come and asked Noah if he needed help putting that boat together if he would have listened to what God said, if God would have let more people on that boat. See, just as the destruction of the flood initiated a new beginning for those who were saved, Peter's saying that in the end, when Jesus returns, they will usher in another new beginning where everything will be made right, where the final judgment will actually bring grace. He says, we're looking forward in verse 13 to a new heavens and new earth, just as he promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. See, the bottom line for Peter isn't just hope for someday future in the end, it is hope for today. It impacts the way they were to live that day. I think it impacts the way we are to live in our day. He says in verse 11, since everything's going to be destroyed, what is what holy and godly lives we should live, which kind of doesn't make sense. If it's going to be destroyed, why should it matter how we live? But then he goes on to say, we look forward to the day of God and hurry it along. On that day, you will set the heavens on fire. Notice how it doesn't say anything about earth. You will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. 
And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless. I don't think God is going to just destroy. Do you like that sound effect? Destroy everything. I think he's going to renew everything. That just like fire in the Serengeti or in even a forest brings new life, that the fire he's talking about is a new life when the heavens and earth will come together and everything will be made right. Not something to just hope for in the far off future, but to live towards now. Make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless. This isn't about being just goody-goody. This is about living into what God has called us to. It's not a passive waiting. It's an active readiness. So some of us were caught off guard by the snow. Others of us have lived here for a long time, and we're like, we're ready. We got the snow tires. We got the salt melts. We're going ha- to handle this winter. When the snow comes, we know The Christmas lights go on, the Christmas candies come out, and the shopping starts. But what if actually getting ready for the season was about stopping and reflecting? During this series, we're going to have to stop and we're going to have to reflect on some of our hard moments, some of our disappointments in the year, some of our losses. We're also going to get to reflect on how good God is even in the midst of that. How there is so much that we can be grateful for. We're going to come to a place where we see that generosity is really the way that God's love is best shown. This um, organization called um, the John Templeton Foundation, they give away money and stuff. They did a Templeton Giving Survey in 2015, and they published the results in November of that year, and they were looking at, hey, I think the consumer, four years old, I think the consumer mindset is taking over Thanksgiving. I I thought that when I saw Christmas trees come out in September, but, you know, that's fine if they want to, if they want to take the survey, and what they learned is that among those who celebrate Thanksgiving, just over a third of those people, 36%, actually go around the table and say what they're thankful for. Did you contribute to that? Maybe you did. But half of them either watch the parade, watch football, or even go play football. Nothing wrong with those things, but again, how do you practice Gratitude. As we enter the season and we think about reflecting, I think we also want to enter the season and think about our gratitude. And then those who think about what they're grateful for daily versus less than daily, they were shown to donate almost 50% more of their money to charity. They donated almost twice the number of hours in their volunteering. And what I think is just fascinating is those who saw themselves as grateful and generous were twice as likely, almost twice as likely, to be happy and satisfied with life. In our world of discontent and depression. I'm not saying we should strive for being happy and and satisfied with life, but kind of a nice little side bonus of practicing gratitude, practicing generosity, starting with reflection. I think hope is on the way. 
It was on the way when the prophets spoke of the coming of the Messiah and he came and it's on the way now because Jesus promises that he will return and the kingdom of heaven will be the fullest, most complete state that any of us have ever experienced. I think it's possible, not just by faith, but by experience that we can experience both God's grace and God's justice at the same time. And we don't have to fear it. We can come into it as God does. Not with scare tactics, but with acts of love, of mercy, and of grace. So, one of the ways that happens for me is, um, especially during this season, I tip even like big when it's bad service. Um, I don't do it all year, but I do do it at this time of the year. I still try to tip more than I should, but even when it's bad and they don't deserve it, I'm like, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to like it. <laughs> Another way that we do this, at least in my family, is we try to pause more in the Advent season. We try to have moments of reflection in the midst of constant distraction. What does it look like for you and what does it look like for us to be a Christ-centered community living as if Jesus could come back at any moment? There was a principal of a large Christian school who was distraught over the disarray of the, the, the school. There were classrooms that were disorganized, desks that were a mess, papers that cluttered the shelves, trash on the floor. The teachers complained that they couldn't get their students to do it because every classroom looked the same. Just a mess. Students said it wasn't their job and the principal decided it is time to take action. So the principal calls the superintendent and the super and requests a visit to this elementary school, and they pick a second grade classroom as their experiment. And so one day, early in the year, the principal knocked on the door, and he and the superintendent walked in. And the superintendent smiled and introduced herself and said, children, I want you to know that your principal, your teacher, even the school board has given you this well-equipped classroom. It's got whiteboards, computers, projectors, all of these ways to enhance your learning. But I need your help. If you look on the floor, you'll see that there are papers and trash everywhere. If you open your desk, I'm sure you'll find that they are far too cluttered. It's making it hard, hard for us to learn, and I need you to keep it clean. In fact, in fact, if each of you clean up not just your classroom, but your desks, and then you keep your desks clean for the rest of the year, and you always pick up the area around your desk, one day before the end of the year, I will return, and if I find your desk clean, I will give each of you a $100 bill. The students' eyes got huge, and as the principal and superintendent walked out of the room, these kids squealed with delight, oh boy, $100, and they got to work. For 20 or 30 minutes, they were cleaning up papers, they were putting the glue caps back on because they were drying out, you could hear the markers click, it was crazy, pandemonium, but good pandemonium. And man, for a week, they were so excited about cleaning up their area. They encouraged each other, they, they had it spotless, 
The next week, they did it. A little less enthusiasm, but they did. By the third week, there were some energetic boys that were like, this is a sham. That superintendent's not coming back. She just did this so that we could be the janitors. I'm giving up. By a month, everyone had given up. By two months, no one picked up any of their area beyond their desk, not even their desks, except for one little girl. Dutifully, this girl inspected her desk every morning, took out all the unnecessary papers, threw them away. Every afternoon, put all of the papers, looked around her desk, picked up the trash on the floor. Relentlessly, she was teased over and over. Why are you doing that? It's such a waste. Why can't you see that they're not coming back? Even her friends were like, why are you wasting your time on that? She's not coming back. Let's just go outside and play. But months went by, and this girl continued to be faithful. Well, with about a week left of school, there was a knock at the door. The students looked up, the principal came in and said, hello class, I'd like to introduce your superintendent again. And as the superintendent walked in and smiled, chaos happened again, you could hear the markers click and you could hear kids trying to pick up stuff, open their desks, shuffling papers, and she's just like, stop, please, stop. I have returned just as I promised. Now is not the time to get ready. Now is the time to be ready. Please stand next to your seats and open your desks. And as the students stood up, and as she started to walk around, you could just hear the excuses. Well, it's, it's the teacher's fault. The teacher didn't help us. Well, it's the principal's fault. The principal didn't remind us. It's your fault. You took too long in coming back. Principal again, or superintendent again, just said, stop. Be quiet. And she walked around looked at each desk, and the students had regret on their face, had shame on their face, all but one little girl. One little girl stood proudly next to her desk, expectant, waiting. As the superintendent came by, she looked under the desk, and her mouth curled. She took the end of a pencil, she lifted up the notebooks and the notepads and the perfectly organized desk. She even opened up the pencil box and saw everything as it should be. She got a big smile on her face and reached in her purse and pulled out a crisp $100 bill and set it in the girl's hands. And then she turned and faced the whole class. Said, girls and boys, I promised you that I would come back. And this girl... She believed my promise. She never stopped doubting that I would return. And she was always ready. Friends, Advent is a time where you and I can be always ready. Will you pray with me? God, we sing... Come, Lord Jesus. The moment we'll hear, 
O come, O come, Emmanuel, this waiting and this longing for you to arrive. But if we're honest, God, we really want to just welcome you as a baby. We want to hold you. We want to say how cute you are. We don't actually want to welcome you as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We don't want you to have authority over our lives. We don't want you to judge or evaluate how we have used our time, our money, our relationships. God, I pray that we would come to you with honesty, that we would come to you with confession, that we would remember that if we confess our sins, you are the one who is faithful and just to forgive all our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So God, prepare our hearts this season. Make room for you this season. God, just as we might take bins out of our closets to put up decorations, I, take, I pray that we would take the bins of our, of our unrighteousness, of the things that we don't like, of the things that we hide, the things that we work so hard to not show on a Sunday morning. God, I pray that we would bring those out and we would hand those to you. That you, in your grace and your forgiveness, would heal us.